Macrocast, the sound of the economic world, with Gilles Moeck, AXA Group Chief Economist. Let's start maybe for once with some good news. Uh, it seems that exits from lockdown are now on the horizon, even if we obviously need to remain prudent. Meanwhile, uh, the US policy response is massive, but it was designed in haste and we think that some hard rethinking is needed. But we will focus this week on US addiction on oil and how it is turning into a significant financial stability issue, while the demise of many shale gas projects will add to the US recession. We will also peek into the confinement of Hugo de Demeny, my guest of the week, to understand why massive green investment is the way to avoid turning the fight against global warming into yet another victim of the pandemic. And finally, as usual, we will update you on the events you'll have to follow this week. It's Monday, April the 20th. I'm Gilles Moeck, and you're listening to Macrocast. The price of oil is down dramatically because of oversupply, and it's not economic for a lot of producers to produce. So what they're doing is they're shutting in production. They're stopping production. Uh, you'll see a number of failures in the industry, um, and people just can't make it through this. Well, you've just heard uh, Fed President Robert Kaplan. Uh, he should know about oil. Uh, he's the boss of the Dallas Fed, um, and Texas is one, is one of the biggest uh, oil producers in the U.S., The Fed's historical decision to delve into non-investment-grade securities will disproportionately help the energy companies. Indeed, this sector has been one of the worst hit in the current market turmoil, with a spread at more than 1,500 basis points at the end of last week for non-investment-grade names, twice the average high-yield spread, reflecting the free fall in oil prices. According to Bloomberg, 40% of exploration drills in the US have already stopped. Energy names now account for nearly 15% of the U.S. high-yield market, more than twice its share of the late 1990s. This reflects the rise in the shale gas industry, and oil prices plummeting adds to the financial stability issues currently facing the United States. This helps to understand the depth of Donald Trump's involvement in brokering a truce between Saudi Arabia and Russia to cut oil output and boost oil prices to the point shale gas will become economically viable again. This has not been successful so far, and we suspect the Fed will have to come to the rescue of quite a few energy-related companies through its various schemes. Beyond financial stability concerns, low oil prices also add to the U.S. recession. Indeed, the U.S. has become a net exporter of oil. But beyond the impact on the trade balance, oil-related companies have brought a noticeable contribution to GDP growth via their investment effort. The correlation is rather loose, but still statistically significant. A barrel of oil at $20 would be consistent with a lag of about six months, with a contraction in energy capex, itself triggering a negative contribution of 0.4% to US GDP. Of course, given the dent to GDP the pandemic is triggering at the moment, this does not look like much. But it is still another headache for the US. And incidentally, this is another source of divergence between the US and Europe, for which low oil prices are a net positive in terms of economic growth. In theory, excluding the impact of regulation, the sharp decline in oil prices could pave the way for a rebound in the share of fossil fuel in the global energy mix, slowing down the decarbonization of world GDP and thus progress towards curbing global warming. Of course, there is a high degree of circularity here. 
Beyond the geopolitical issues at stake between Saudi Arabia and Russia, it is likely that a post-pandemic economic recovery would be accompanied by higher oil prices. It is reassuring to find that after an initial collapse from roughly 26 euros per ton on the 19th of February to a trough at 15 euros per ton on the 18th of March, the price of carbon emission allowances on the European trading system has started to recover. It was north of 20 euros at the end of last week. Still, such a low carbon price is inconsistent with the EU's new emission targets. There is a wide array of estimates, but according to a report by the Center for Climate and Energy Analysis, issued in February, moving from the current 40% reduction target to at least 50% by 2030, as per the Commission's proposal, would call for a reduction in the quantum of emission allowances, triggering a rise in the price of a ton of carbon on the ETS market to 34 euros in 2025 and 52 euros by 2030. However, Several high-ranking policymakers, especially from Eastern Europe, have already called for delaying the decision on the new emission targets, while the Czech Prime Minister Babis on March the 16th called for a full consolidation of the Green Deal, and the Polish Minister for State Assets the following day advocated scrapping the emission trading scheme altogether. It was probably unavoidable that green concerns get sidelined at the peak of the policy fight against the pandemic for both logistical and efficiency reasons. The risk is to lose track of them entirely as we design the medium-term support to our economies. Since responding very quickly to the crisis was essential, some aspects of green fund tuning, as we would call it, which were in the pipeline but still far from being operational, had to be put on the back burner. Before the pandemic struck, the ECB was thinking about greening its monetary policy framework. As part of the policy review, which was supposed to take the better part of 2020. Some options were obvious, such as introducing ESG criteria in the kind of collateral the central bank accepts when refinancing the banks, or in the type of asset it buys as part of its quantitative easing program. But nothing concrete had emerged. As the ECB had to step up the policy effort in a matter of days in March, while facing the same organizational issues as everyone else, the governing council probably had no other choice than to stick to their existing framework, and assets representative of intensively polluting activities are still acceptable for refinancing and purchases. Beyond the lack of time, it was probably seen as preferable to provide a sort of blanket protection across sectors, since flooring the recession at any cost was, and still is, the number one priority. Still, greening the ECB's framework now, that its balance sheet has spectacularly inflated again, would have a more detrimental impact on brown industries, since they, just like the rest of the economy, have just become more sensitive to even minute changes in the central bank's practice. The short-term economic damage from excluding them entirely from access to the ECB's extraordinary support or introducing specific haircuts for the most polluting sectors has become larger. In a nutshell, the balance between the short-term negative impact on GDP and the long-term benefit to fighting global warming has been affected. We expect such greening to wait until the ECB considers the economy as fully normalized. More fundamentally, we are facing two contradicting trends. First, the risk that the green concerns disappear from collective consciousness for a while, a sort of an affordable luxury when recouping the lost growth of 2020 and avoiding a lasting depression is a priority for several years. 
we suspect that the wrong notion that in any case, the current global recession by reducing CO2 emissions has given us more time to deal with global warming is about to become very popular. Second, the opposite risk of seeing public opinion react to the pandemic with a generic rejection of globalization to embrace alternative economic models, which at first glance could reduce CO2 emissions, but at a massive cost to global economic growth. We use a simple statistical illustration to reject both views, and I have asked Hugo Le Demeni, who is the econometric wizard in my team, to explain how we did this. Hello, Hugo. How are you coping with the lockdown? Hello, Gilles. Um, I'm fine, thank you. Uh, economic news is quite intense right now, so actually time flies pretty fast, and uh, lockdown doesn't stop me from doing my wizard stuff. Perfect. Uh, so, what could we expect from the pandemic in terms of CO2 emissions? Um, at the current trend in carbon density, uh, which is the, the unit of carbon per unit of GDP, we believe it's reasonable to expect that under a baseline for which GDP grows, we could see CO2 emissions transitorily fall by approximately 6% this year. And is this going to help with global warming? Not really. Emissions would need to fall on a sustained basis. For 2021 onward, we compute what would be the maximum growth rate in GDP consistent with the emissions envelope calculated by the Global Investor Coalition on Climate Change, which would keep global warming under 1.5 degrees by the end of the century. At the rate of decarbonization of our economies observed between 2000 and 2019, which has unfortunately slowed down relative to the 90s, the maximum authorized GDP growth would actually be a contraction of 0.6% per year for the entirety of the decade. To be clear, this means that the ongoing recession is having only a very marginal impact on how we are consuming our carbon envelope and it's not giving us more time to deal with the global warming. How sensitive is this computation to the assumption for the starting point? Not much, actually. Even if we factored in a contraction in CO2 emissions of, let's say, 12% in 2020, under the recent decarbonization trend, the speed limit on GDP would be at 0.3% per annum. Well, thanks a lot, Hugo. And I now let you go back to jogging in your own living room. Goodbye. So, in a nutshell, the issue has not gone away magically because of the pandemic. Additional and potentially costly efforts at speeding up the decarbonization of our economies are necessary and cannot be postponed. But at the same time, we would ask the proponents of slow growth, and we noted an op-ed in Le Monde last week calling for not switching on again once the lockdown is, is over. We would like to ask them whether it could, would be politically and socially acceptable that we should collectively forfeit any rebound from the current recession in 2021 and then cancel any growth in our GDP growth rate per head. So, if a return of business as usual in our economies and forgetting about global warming is as much a dead end as degrowth, what is the acceptable path then? We think we can find it around supporting investment. We argued two weeks ago in Macrocast that global capex could be a lasting victim of the current recession. At the same time, the European Commission estimates the investment effort needed to deliver the green transition at 2-3% of annual GDP. True. A lot of those transition investments are not immediately profitable, and that is part of revealing the true cost of the negative externality which global warming ultimately is. But we can draw on the low level of interest rates, which is also likely to be a lasting consequence of the current recession. 
In November, we proposed a European Climate Emergency Fund modeled on the European Stability Mechanism, which would issue front-loaded, joint, very long-term debt, whose proceeds would be used to fund green transition projects undertaken by governments or corporations. We continue to think there is an opportunity to reconcile economic growth, curbing global warming, and making much-needed progress on European fiscal integration. We only have one Europe, and we only have one world. This week, as you know, the European leaders will hold a video conference this Thursday. It's going to be very important. Uh, we've had a Eurogroup meeting, which has produced some fairly unambitious projects. We need more from Europe in terms of fiscal mutualization to have a proper, strong response to the crisis. Also, this week, we need to look at the Michigan Consumer Confidence Index in the US. Uh, it's always an interesting set of data, but this time the publication is going to be probably even more important than usual. We need to gauge the impact of this pandemic on consumer confidence, on consumer feelings, because we need to see or we need to be able to predict how consumer spending is going to react once we get out of lockdown. Well, if you want to go further and in particular discover the statistical artwork of Hugo de Demeni, uh, our Macrocast newsletter is available on the AXA Investment Manager's website. And if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions, please feel free to share them as a comment on Apple Podcasts. See you all next Monday and have a great week. Macrocast, the sound of the economic world. Available every Monday on your podcast app. 